Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin is a spiritual and spirited community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. If you're visiting with us for the first time, please don't hesitate to ask questions about Unitarian Universalism or about this congregation of the fine people at the visitor's table, which is in the back of the room there. And they will do their best to help you um, get the answers that you seek. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And so in this congregation, we greet the divine on a Sunday morning by turning to the person to our right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Anyway, so for the third Sunday in our fellowship hall, which is the old sanctuary, let us light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Good morning. I'm Elizabeth Gray, and I'm your lay leader today. Our call to worship are words from Richard Jeffries. It is eternity now. I am in the midst of it. It's about me in the sunshine. I am in it as the butterfly in the light-laden air. Nothing has to come. It is now. Now is eternity. Now is the immortal life. It's amazing. Harry Emerson Fosdick was a very famous preacher in New York City. It's amazing that the words that he wrote of this song seem to ring true even now. Um, So apparently, uh, we've always, we, the the righteous... (laughs) Uh, I can't even say that with a straight face. To have always um, <laughs> felt surrounded by evil times. Just felt like evil times. Because the world is full of sorrow. And uh, the evil times can be very distressing and upsetting. And we can feel disturbed and excited and hopeful and fearful and defeated. And all of those things at the same time. And it, it can knock us off center. It makes us wonder sometimes, what are we doing, and what's the purpose, and why are we fighting so hard? And um, this is where it's good to have a mission. That's why we hung it on the wall and we say it together every Sunday. This will center us again. Here's what we're here for. Together, transform lives and do justice to build the beloved community. Our reading this morning is a poem called Brave Space by Mickey Scott Bay Jones. Together we will create brave space. Because there's no such thing as safe space. We exist in the real world. We all carry scars and we have all caused wounds. In this space... We seek to turn down the volume of the outside world. We amplify voices that fight to be heard elsewhere. We call each other to more truth and love. 
We have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow. We have the responsibility to examine what we think we know. We will not be perfect. This space will not be perfect. It will not always be what we wish it to be. But it will be our brave space together. And we will work in it side by side. When our spirits are stronger, we can be more brave. One of the things that strengthens our spirit is to enter into silence together with others. Ralph Waldo Emerson called it the wise silence. This is the time in our service where we enter into an attitude of meditation and prayer where we speak and listen to God as we understand God or listen to our inner wisdom or just follow our breath as it comes in and out of our bodies. In this space, we can achieve more clarity. We can feel ourselves rooted in the heart of compassion. We can feel ourselves held in the arms of love. Let us enter into the wise silence together, understanding that small noises from babies and the noises of life count as part of the silence in this congregation.
when I was in search uh, nine years ago, that's what they call looking for a job when you're a minister. Um, I read a lot of material from a lot of different churches, and the, the material from this church was wonderful, which is why I'm here, and it um, talked more about wanting the new minister to help them create a safe space than any other place I read about. I think we have taken that seriously together, and we've worked, this is my eighth year here, I think we've worked for the last seven years on making it a safe space. And I can't help but think that it's because of that feeling of safety, partially, that the spirit of the congregation and the board were strong enough to adventure as they um, revisited our church ends, which is another word for goals. They were, um, they created a group of ends, goals, that were an expression of deep courage. And I'm doing a sermon series on those ends. I talked about the um, first one in September, and this is the second one. Um, I think this has always been a justice-seeking church. In fact, I know that it has been. And yet these uh, new ends have focused the justice-seeking part of the church um, trajectory much more sharply. And um, just for myself, I, I was rereading John Kabat-Zinn's book, Full Catastrophe Living. Um, I reread it about every 10 years. And um, Full Catastrophe Living is my favorite title in the world, by the way. It comes from Zorba the Greek. Um, and his friend said, Zorba, were you ever married? And Zorba said, married, wife, children, the full catastrophe. <laughs> and I reread Full Catastrophe Living in hopes that reading about meditation, was John Kabat-Zinn is a teacher of mindfulness-based medica- meditation at Johns Hopkins Medical Center. So... Um, that's what he does. And I keep hoping, because I love reading, that reading the book will be about the same as meditating. (laughs) And I want to meditate because, you know, it's supposed to help create more gray matter in your brain if you need more. I've got plenty right now, and uh, I don't want too much uh, because it just causes nothing but trouble. So that's been a good excuse for not meditating. But it also helps, um, it helps with inflammation, which gives me heck in my life. So I'm going to try to start meditating in order to help deal with pain and, and inflammation. So it's finally got me. But meditating is a challenge because, you know, I like to work and I like to read. And I like to write, which counts as working. And I like to sing, which counts as working. So... Uh, But sitting there paying attention to your breath just feels like doing nothing. (laughs) But it's not doing nothing. How's that for a grammatical sentence? It is doing something that is apparently crucial for your body and your spirit. And yet, you know, I haven't done it. I I buy yoga mats in order to try to pretend like I'm going to do yoga. (laughs) 
and I, and I buy this book in order to pretend that I'm going to start meditating. But I really am this time. <laughs> I'll let you know how it goes. It reminds me of uh, the letters of Paul in the Christian scriptures where he goes, the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I do want to do, I don't do. And I figure that's a pretty good description of the human condition, so I don't feel too bad. But in reading this book, one line jumped out at me to talk about the second end, and let me tell you what the second end is. Quote, we support and challenge one another in worship, spiritual growth, and lifelong learning to practice a rich spiritual life. And the part that strikes me is that we support and challenge one another in worship and lifelong learning in order to have a rich spiritual life. Supporting and challenging. Which tells me that this that the board wants me to do both parts of my job as a preacher and Chris too. Uh, The job of a preacher has the pastoral side, which comes from the word for the fields, you know, pasture. It's like a shepherd job of tending, tenderly, teaching, um, comforting, protecting. And the other side is the prophetic job. And the prophetic word comes from the word... Yeah, I didn't want to tell you that like you didn't already know. And everybody hates a prophet, really. Prophets in the Jewish scriptures are always um, scolding the people and scolding the secure and shining the light on the sins. And um, uh, people hate prophets. They chase them out into the desert and they dig holes and make the prophet live in the hole for seven years. But in order to be a minister of a church, you've got to have the pastoral and the prophetic. And if you're really skillful, you try to do them both at the same time. <coughs> now, an old saw amongst preacher kind, and I'm going to say this in my Reverend Uncle Henry's voice because this is how he sounded in the pulpit or out. The job of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. <laughs> And, you know, everybody laughs politely, but all the preachers know that that's pretty smug because life afflicts the comfortable. You don't have to do any extra, usually. And if you work with people, you really don't know that many who are comfortable. A lot of people look like it on the outside, but if you open a little door to the inside, there's a good bit of pain in there and everybody And I don't like to scald people, and I don't like to scold people, and I myself have never learned well from being yelled at or shamed. Have you? No. Makes me fold up like a little fern, and it does almost everybody I know. Nobody likes to be shamed. We like to be righteous. (laughs) It feels really good to rise up and be about to smite somebody. With a well-reasoned argument, (laughs) correctness. But I want you to put a little red flag on that righteous feeling. Let the red flag pop up if you ever feel that rising up in you because you're about to do something terrible. (laughs) But we are called to challenge one another and support one another and to challenge our culture 
which is so busy trying to worship money and power and so skillfully engineered to keep the heavy-footed on top. The prophet Jeremiah says, You treat the mortal wound of my people as if it were superficial, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Think, let's be civil. Let's be civil. Peace, peace. You're dying of a mortal wound, but be, be sweet. We support and challenge one another. Our goal says toward growth into a rich spiritual life. And I think we know how to support one another. We do that pretty well. That feels good to us. Um, we are not as skillful at challenging one another. At least that's my experience. Uh, if you look at Facebook, you will see people challenging one another. It's ugly. We love stomping on each other's ignorance. You stupid fool, don't you know this? Oh, your reading comprehension is terrible. Oh. I uh, myself am never nasty on Facebook. <laughs> and when I am, I delete it right away. But here's the line in the John Kabat-Zinn book that jumped out at me about this particular end of our congregation. People blossom when challenged and wither when threatened. People blossom when challenged and wither when threatened. I put this on Facebook because even though it's ugly out there, I still love it. And I let my friends chew on it for a week. And... The discussion was interesting. Um, they said things like a threat is something intended to harm and a challenge is intended for good. <clears throat> Challenges involve hope and not fear. And then there ensued a discussion about, well, what if what you say you mean as a challenge, you intend it as a challenge, but someone hears it as a threat. And then there ensued a um, discussion about white supremacy culture and white fragility and um, et cetera, and which I will touch on in a minute here. But then the question was, well, if you are meaning to issue a challenge and not a threat, if your intention is good, then whose responsibility is it to behave as if it's not a threat. Is that your, do you have to communicate it better or does the receiver have to receive it better? You know, do you have to, do you have to gentle yourself down or does the receiver have to toughen themselves up? Now, that was an interesting discussion too. Uh, unresolved, as you can imagine. Uh, one of our church members um, put it most elegantly, I thought, Challenges are invitations to grow. Threats are warnings not to grow. I love that. And uh, most of us can notice that the place where Unitarian Universalists are feeling most uh, threatened slash challenged now is in our trying to get right about whiteness culture. We're trying really hard. We've been trying for years, decades, without actually much big progress. Um, to get right about whiteness culture. And it's funny to me 
strange, funny, that people who love to learn so much, as we all do, many of us react so defensively when there's this new thing to learn. And uh, the people of color, people of the global majority amongst us, they are experts in this. They know this already, have known it for like 200 years or more. And yet those of us who identify as white are still trying to play catch up about this and trying to learn it and really getting tired of it. Uh, Because hasn't that problem gone away yet? No, it has not. And it takes a lot of mistakes in order to get better at this whiteness culture thing, dismantling of. And we hate making mistakes, all of us. Don't care what color you are. It's hard to make mistakes. So it takes practice plus mistakes to learn to respond with curiosity and courage to a challenge. And it's hard to recognize a challenge when it feels like a threat. We just want to, and by we, I mean me, um, want to curl up, shut the windows, sit in the big comfortable chair and recite our liberal credentials. (laughs) So this could not be about me. And yet, even if you are individually not pouring toxins into the system, you are, if you're a person who identifies as white, you are probably benefiting from the system. Like, uh, I have the privilege of whiteness and I have the privilege of citizenship. Double whammy, great privilege. Um, I knew one night when I was driving in North Georgia and started getting followed by a pickup truck with Confederate flags flying. I knew that I was not in mortal danger because uh, if I had broken down at that moment, those fellas would have seen me, nice white lady, as uh, they didn't really know me, (laughs) which is a good thing, Um, but they would have seen me as the kind of person that they are sworn to protect. So they would have probably helped me. And I was feeling so strongly, uh, what if I had been black? What if I had been brown? What if I had been native? That would have been a completely different situation. Yes, even in 2018. Completely different situation. And we, um, so I have those privileges. I lost my heterosexual privileges suddenly when I ended my marriage to a man in a small southern town and came out as gay. (laughs) I mean, I lost them like that. And, um, People did just turn their backs on me in the grocery store, et cetera. Uh, and my business crashed. I was a, th- a marriage counselor. Um, <laughs> I, I really crashed it myself. I just shut the doors. I'm like, I just can't even anymore. I just can't. I just want to lean over to everybody and go, come on, it's too hard. <laughs> Not very pastoral. Um, so I noticed in large and small ways, the loss of that privilege. And as I've aged, I've felt the loss of able-bodied health privileges. And there are privileges of youth and health and privileges of, of white skin and privileges of being gender typical and neurotypical privileges of being the dominant sexual preference, uh, the dominant socioeconomic background. And by dominant, I don't mean majority. I mean the ones heavy-footed on top. 
there are many more privileges and we're all a mess of intersecting privileges and lack of privilege. Hear what I'm saying? And what I want to say is those of us who have more privileges are simply playing the game of life in this culture at a lower level of difficulty than people who have fewer privileges. Does that make sense? So an African-American trans person is going to be playing the game at a very high level of difficulty. And if you're playing at a low level, it doesn't mean you can't lose. You still can lose. It's just you have a head start on the game. And there are so many things like this that we have to challenge ourselves to notice because we, many of us have the privilege of not noticing it. If we're men, we have the privilege of not noticing how unsafe women feel all the time. We are agog. What? You mean you've been harassed and assaulted? You never told me. Why didn't you come forward sooner? But tell it without being hysterical. Don't get me started. (laughs) And there are so many challenges in all of our lives that it feels like a shame to try to um, add more challenges in worship. And yet we are a people who like lifelong learning. And our goal is lifelong learning. And our goal is to have a rich spiritual life. And you can't have a rich spiritual life if you have a blinded, blinkered heart. Does that make sense? You have to open your eyes. And sometimes we feel defensive when there's a challenge because we feel like something is going to be taken away from us. And somebody will say, oh, nothing's going to be taken away from you. You're just going to see things more clearly. I want to tell you, that is not completely true. Because I know when I um, came to consciousness as a feminist in seminary, uh, started noticing the war on women, uh, by simply just reversing the genders of every situation I saw. What would this be like if that were a man and that were a woman and that were a woman and that were a man? What would it be like? And suddenly it was like, oh my gosh. And you can't unsee it. So my little happy bubble was taken away. And when I became aware uh, about the war on black, brown, and native people in our country and others. I began reversing skin colors in every situation and having that same feeling like, oh my God, I, uh, I can't unsee that now. And so my sweet vision was taken away and yet I still feel almost rude pointing out the things I notice, like Every 28 days, sorry, every 28 hours, a black, brown, or native person is murdered by police. Three women a day are murdered by their husbands, boyfriends, or intimate partners. Three a day. Nobody talks about that. It's it's not polite. It's rude to notice those things. And when people start noticing them and shining the light on the facts of them, they're called disruptive Because they are. They're disrupting the system that just says over and over again, shut up and talk about the American dream. Doesn't that feel better? 
We're not allowed by the headwinds of whiteness culture and the headwinds of patriarchal culture, which is not men's fault. Women participate in it too. I have to say, not romantic about women in that way. I used to think, oh, if just women were in charge. No. I still have friends where I go, we just need to get the grandmothers in charge. I'm like, uh, do you know Golda Meir? <laughs> so this is a hard world for many of us. And yet we are called to challenge and support one another. And I call us to support one another 10 times more than we challenge. And when we challenge, do it with humility and love. It's like Rabbi Jesus always said, try to work on the speck on the log in your own eye before you try to work on the speck in your neighbor's eye. But it's, but Rabbi Jesus is so much more fun to try to clean up my neighbor's eye. I've been living with this log for a long time. It can handle 10 more years or so. So challenge one another rarely and with huge love. The culture, on the other hand, has all the support it needs. All the support it needs. We can rise up and challenge this culture. And we do not have to be sweet about it. We can be loud and intelligent and funny and joyous and angry and determined and powerful and together as we rise up against this wicked culture. And, thank you, and we will grow into a rich spiritual life as we root ourselves in compassion and humility and as we root ourselves in rightness not whiteness. And as we slow down to take a deep breath when we're confronted by something new and ask ourselves, is this really a threat or is this just a challenge? Am I like physically unsafe or am I just uncomfortable? Where we do what we say we'll do, where we know who we are and who we want to be, if we develop that kind of a rich inner self, We will do more good in the world. We'll enrich our own experience of life and we'll be a lot better to live with, too. May it be so. Let us say the words together by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community. And the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Sing with me if you care to. The lone wild bird in lofty flight is still with thee, nor leaves thy sight. And I am thine, I rest in Great Spirit, come and rest in me. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. 
For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.